0: This morning's scripture reading will be out of First Timothy, 3rd chapter, verses 14-16. through 16. And on the pew bibles located in the pews in front of you, that will be on page 1054. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so, so you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, thank you so much for being with us this morning. You being here is an encouragement to us, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you, but also that together we can worship God in spirit and in truth. We're thinking about good health for a few weeks, not just the physical good health, which definitely our bodies are the temple of God, and so we ought to be concerned about physical health also But there's something far more important than just physical health, and that is spiritual health. It's interesting how some have tried to do studies relating to see if spiritual health has anything to do with physical health. There's a study that's been going on for 16-plus years at a university in Pittsburgh. It's the Carnegie Mellon University. And for over 16 years now, these studies have been done, for example, spraying a virus of the cold, the common cold, in the noses of volunteers and finding out if someone's spiritual well-being could have anything to do with whether or not they would catch the common cold. What they found out is that individuals that carry worry, anxiety, and heavy amounts of stress in their life are three times more likely to catch a common cold than someone who is spiritual-minded, someone who casts their cares upon God, someone that has the peace that passes understanding in their life. What they also find out is that when they survey or uh, study the people's lives, those that have been under heavy stress, especially for the last 30 days, are much more likely to catch a common cold. It's not that those that are spiritual-minded never catch the common cold. That's not at all the result of the study. But it is interesting that the, the numbers prove that their symptoms are much more mild than the others. Another interesting thing was that the result of the individual's relationships with others, their social life as it relates in a diversity of ways. If they believed and felt good about the relationship with spouses, with parents, with children, with their fellow church members, and etc., then they were more likely to avoid physical sickness. It's interesting to think that God would offer to us a spiritual life that would help us in every other area of our life. Now, we looked last week at the importance of being a true worshiper and that that helps us build the spiritual life that God would want us to have. That's just one very important aspect. But this week, I'd like for you to think about the beautiful passage that was just so capably read for us. The passage that would really stop and challenge us to see number one how do we perceive the church and number two what is our life and involvement in the church once our perception is as it should be you see I believe that if we're going to be the spiritual people that we ought to be if we're going to have good spiritual health we're going to have to have a good understanding and a good life of involvement in the Lord's church as we think about this I'd like for you to note again the text in First Timothy, the third chapter, except this time, let's target verse 15. When Paul, writing to Timothy, Timothy, working in the, the city of Ephesus, hears these words, But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves. In other words, he's saying, I want you to learn how to behave yourselves, how to conduct yourself. But notice this description. To conduct yourself in the house of God could also be translated in the household of God. In the house of God, what is the house of God? Which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. Let's take some time this morning and develop this thought. What in the world does God mean when He says, I want you to understand the church, but I want you to understand the church as the household of God. I want you to see the church as family. Friends, this morning I need to really put my toes to the line and give myself a test from inside and out. Do I recognize the people sitting around me as my family? I'm probably not in very good spiritual health. If I do not have a heart of responsibility for those sitting around me realizing they're my family. When I gossip about those sitting around me, I'm gossiping about my family. When I backbite those that are sitting around me, I'm backbiting my family. When I love those that are sitting around me, I love my family. When I serve those that are sitting around me, I serve my family. But I need to recognize as we're speaking now, we're talking about God's family also. When I gossip about those about me, I'm gossiping about God's family. When I serve those sitting about me, I'm serving God's family And it's not just an analogy where God says, I want you to understand me as a shepherd and I want you to understand the the church as a flock. That's a beautiful analogy. But friends, this is used far too many times and in far too many specific times where God's not just saying, I want you to try to comprehend the church as kind of like a family. No, God wants us to understand the church is a family. Let's look at just a few of the passages by way of introduction. Back up with me, if you will, to Mark the third chapter. As you're turning to Mark the third chapter, some of you probably already thought, wait a minute, preacher, the church didn't exist in Mark the third chapter. And that's right. But isn't it an interesting fact that as Jesus was leading, preparing the way for the church to be established in Acts, and by the way, the book of Acts, the word brother is used 30 times That's more than one per chapter on average. Every book of the New Testament after that almost contains the word brother. The book of 1 Thessalonians, that short book, has a reference to brother over or 19 times at least. Over and over and over, God is saying, I want you to see yourself as family. Look as he prepares the way here in Mark the third chapter let's begin reading in 31 and uh, through 35 then his brothers now this is talking about Jesus physical brothers here then his brothers and his mother came and standing outside they sent to him calling him and a multitude was setting around him so there's a multitude around Jesus his physical family is on the outside of this multitude they send for Jesus to come and they said to him this is what the multitude said look Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered, talking about the multitude, he answered them saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him, and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, note that, For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus, what are you trying to get us to see here? He's saying, I want to show you a priority here. There's something that is actually more important than a physical family. That's the spiritual family. To make sure that our life is right with our Father. To make sure that as our life is right with our Father, that our life is right with our Father's children. Well, who's the Father's children? Those that do the will of God are the Father's children. And those individuals recognize that we're all brothers, we're all sisters. Let's read a passage in John, the first chapter. It's a very beautiful chapter in John, the first chapter. Let's pick up somewhat in the middle of a paragraph, but just to see this fact how God wants to see us as family and wants us to see Him as a part of our family. We're in John, the first chapter. Let's look at verse 11, 12, and 13. Look again for who does the will of the Father or the will of God as we read this. He came to His own, and His own... This is talking about Jesus coming down to earth. He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. You see, that's talking about family there. Who's going to become the family of God? Who's going to become sons or daughters of God? Children of God, who is it? To those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man... But born of what? Born of the will of God. Adopted into God's family. God's family. God the Father. Sons and daughters of God. Do you have a healthy spiritual life? Do you perceive the church of God as your family? This morning, I had a privilege of sitting in a Bible class that was wonderfully and masterfully taught. That individual was referring to this very same topic that we're studying now. And that teacher said, I have brothers and sisters in this church that are closer to me than my physical family. We can't be surprised. Because many of us could say the same thing. But definitely, God teaches, it's going to happen often. Because when we truly are spiritually healthy, we start to recognize how important our brothers and sisters around us really are. What are some characteristics of a spiritual family that God says we ought to have? Well, let's go back to the same text, and I don't mean just those few verses that we've just read in 1 Timothy 3, but keep in mind, Paul was writing the whole book of 1 Timothy at one setting, probably, but definitely to be read at one setting. So let's go through, and we don't have time to pick them all out this morning, but let's just look at a few of the characteristics that we find in 1 Timothy, where Paul would say to Timothy, here's some things I want your church family to have. Here are things I want you to practice. Let's drop down to the 5th chapter in 1 Timothy, the 5th chapter. And let's look at the way God wants us to view family here as it deals with respect and sacrifice. The first three verses really just lay out some simple identifying marks that I expect you to view each other as family. But then He gives some very uh, very specific responsibilities that we can look in verse 4 and then the rest of the chapter would deal with the same thing, but we don't have time to deal with all those. So let's look at verse 1 through 4. Do not rebuke... This is 1 Timothy 5, 1. Do not rebuke an older man but exhort him as a father. Now he's talking about the church family here. How are we that are younger than an older man, how are we supposed to view that older man? Oh, he's just a member of the church. No. Timothy, Paul says, I want you to not just see him as a member of the church. I want you to see him as a spiritual father to you. That's the way you're going to conduct your life around Him because He's a father. But exhort Him as a father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters with all purity. Now let's look at some responsibilities. Honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them First, learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Let's think about this last verse. Here we see that there is something that is to be learned at home. What is it that is to be learned at home? Piety, which deals with great respect. Also, he said, to repay. Sacrifice is to be learned at home. As we see the life cycle of of our lives on this earth, we know that a little baby has and is totally dependent upon the care of the older generation. An older generation nourishes and raises that little child. But as the life cycle progresses, that child becomes independent and eventually the older generation becomes dependent upon the younger generation. Here we're reading about a passage where the Lord is dealing with, what do we do with widows? The men in their life have died. The only ones that are left are the younger generations. This is the day especially before social securities, pensions, retirements, etc. But it still doesn't rule out the principle that is applicable to us today. And that is, what is this older generation that's already done their time of serving other ones, how is a physical family supposed to view them? How do you view your aunt that's a widow? How do you view your grandmother that's a widow? How do you view your mother that is a widow? This is a principle that God is teaching. He says, I want you as the younger generation to always show respect to them. Always show respect to them. And if they have a financial, a physical need, I want you to sacrifice. They sacrificed for you. They paid their dues, in other words, for you and your well-being. And now that that life cycle is reversed, now they are dependent upon you, he says, I want you to do the same for them. Most of us probably understand that principle very well. Some of us have had godly parents that have gone on before us that have showed us that example as they have dealt with their grandparents. Many of us have looked around to those of you that in the last few years you have waited upon your parents or you've waited upon a family member that has aging And I just want you to know that we it doesn't go unnoticed. It's a tremendous example for all of us to see that God's plan is for the younger to always show respect to the older and to sacrifice. Someone says, you know... That widow has gone to that church at Mount Juliet all her life. She's put a lot of money in that plate Sunday after Sunday. I may be her grandson, but I think they ought to take care of her up there at the church. And the Lord would write in 1 Timothy, the fifth chapter, and say, Absolutely not. You learn first to show piety and to repay at home. It's the responsibility of family to take care of family. But then he says, Now. Let's learn a lesson as a church. As a church. Now that doesn't mean as a church we have no responsibility of respect and of service and etc. But here he's teaching. He says, now as a church, if that widow doesn't have family that can take care of her or doesn't have family that will take care of her, he says, now I want the family of God to step in and do the same thing that the physical family would do otherwise. We don't have an option on this, brethren, because we're family. There cannot be such a thing as an older person that is a member of the Mount Juliet Church of Christ not receiving respect, not receiving the financial things that they need because that's what family does. Family shows respect. Family sacrifices for one another. Paul wanted to set things in order in Ephesus. He wanted them to see themselves not just as a church that was a community of believers. You know, that's a a real vogue term today, community of believers. And there's nothing wrong with it. We have come together as a community of believers. But I want you to see something that's biblical here. We're a family of God. Those of us Of the same age of each other brothers and sisters in our relationship with each other. Those of us that are scattered in age, we view each other as sons or daughters or mothers and fathers, but we're all in the same family. It's learned first at home, but it's exercised in the church family also. Let's see a second one that's very positive, although at first read, some may say, Now, why did he bring up that negative subject? This isn't a negative subject. If you've been here over the last several months, you know that several months ago, we looked at one or two lessons about the beauty of submission. And so let's think about this as, again, he wants to teach a lesson of what the church ought to be. Let's go back now to 1 Timothy, the second chapter. And let's read verse 11, 12, 13, and 14, and let's see what he says about the church, the church family. How should this family be? He says, verse 11, "'Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, "'for I do not permit a woman to teach.'" Now, see, this is the definition of the silence. In other words, in 11, we'd say, "'What is that silence? "'Does that mean that she can't say anything?' Well, no, if that was the case, there would be no singing. A woman could not make any noise.'" It's not speaking of noise here. Well, what is it speaking of? Look at verse 12. For I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. And then he gives reasons here. It doesn't have anything to do with the culture of Ephesus. Instead, he says, number one, back to creation. Adam was formed first, then Eve, and then the order of sin, verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. What's the point here? The point is interesting. Submission is something that is always a blessing to any family. It's going to be a blessing to the family of God whenever the members of God's family are submissive to one another. Here, he's speaking specifically to women and their role in the church. It has nothing to do with essence or worth. We all have various roles. And so for one to be able to speak in a worship service and the other not to be able to speak has nothing to do with who is the most valuable. To say that one role makes one worth more because of submission, we would have to assume that God the Father is worth more than God the Son because God the Son has submitted his life to God the Father while he was on this earth. Now, I don't think anyone here is comfortable saying, well, that means God the Father is more valuable than God the Son. Absolutely not. You see, the idea of having submissive or authoritative roles has nothing to do with one's worth or one's essence, but... Every good family has individuals, all of the individuals that are willing to be submissive people. Let's look at some other passages that deal with submission. Let's go back to Ephesians, the fifth chapter. In Ephesians, the fifth chapter, I want you to notice, we have several verses there. We're not going to read them all because I want us to concentrate primarily on verse 21. A lot of times we start with 22 and we miss out on verse 21. Notice in 21, finishing a sentence from the previous paragraph, he says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Now, what are we learning from the physical family here? We're learning from the physical family that everybody in that family has to submit. We have to submit to God the Father. We have to submit to what is best for the family. Over the next few verses, we read that women are to submit to the heads of the home, but the heads of the home are submitting to Christ. This headship has nothing to do with, it's my way, I'll do everything the way I want to do it, The head is submitting to the will of God. Let's go over to Hebrews the 13th chapter and see how this would relate as it relates to a church family. Let's look at Hebrews the 13th chapter. Hebrews 13 and verse 17. Hebrews 13 and 17, he says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. You show me any church family that has a personality that bows its neck at authority, and I'll show you an unhealthy church. You show me a church family that has cliques within it that that they bow their neck at authority and I'll show you an unhealthy church. You show me a physical family that has just one member of that family that constantly rebels against authority and I will show you a physical family that suffers a lot of pain. Why? Because submission is godly And submission is beautiful, and submission builds strong families. Submission builds strong churches. Everybody on this earth that is a faithful Christian submits. Everybody. There's no such thing as a faithful Christian that is not submissive. We submit to our elders. Someone says, well, what if you're an elder? You submit to Christ on high. That's the head of the church. You submit to one another. You realize every elder serves under an eldership? Every elder submits to an eldership. There's no such thing. No such thing as a godly, faithful individual that's not submissive. So there's no surprise that Paul would write to Timothy and say, let me tell you how the house of God ought to be. The house of God ought to be full of of respect and sacrifice for one another. It ought to be full of, of submission. And it also ought to be full of godly leadership Let's look at this in the third chapter of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy the third chapter, let's look at the qualifications of the elders. We see back in verse 2 it says a bishop then must be. And so we have this list of qualifications. They're they're not suggestions. It's not pick out a few of these characteristics. It says they must be these things. So God is laying out the way he wants his church to conduct themselves. In other words, the text for today, this text was led up to by these particular verses about the elders and the deacons. And notice what he says he must be in verse 4 and 5. One who rules. This is what an elder must be. One who rules his own house well, having his children in... Here we are again. What are his children? His children are in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to take care, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? The Lord says, I see the church needing strong, family-oriented men. be able to lead her. Why? Because it's family. When a man can lead his physical family in a spiritual way, a man ought to be able to lead the spiritual family in a spiritual way. Well, what does this physical family, what does this leader have to do? This leader has to have proven to be effective. It's not that he gave it his best. It's not he tried real hard. He must have ruled his family well. He must have succeeded at this. Now, what's going to be the gauge of success? A good gauge of the success is you look at the life of his children. Did his children submit to his will and to the will of the Father? And did they do it out of anger and regret? No, they did it out of reverence. When a man can lead his family in a godly way and his family loves and respects their father, that man is qualified in this one area to be an elder. That's the qualification. Godly leaders. I need to see the benefit and the blessing of God's plan of the family, I need to make sure that I love that plan, that I'm a part of that plan, and supportive of that plan. As we extend the invitation, I would like for you to key again on those words in 1 Timothy 3 and 15, and I'd like for you to notice what it says about truth. 1 Timothy 3 and 15, again, he says... If I'm delayed, I write that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. Notice it's the pillar and the ground of truth. You see, the very reason we went to this text is because we're thinking over this short series of lessons we're doing is what is sound. The word sound means healthy, so we're talking about Spiritual health, we're talking about health that comes about of following sound teaching. Well, what's sound teaching? Sound teaching is the truth. What's the church supposed to be? The church is to be a family of God that is standing on the truth. That's the ground of truth. But also, the church is a pillar. The church holds up the truth. I don't think there's any accident why Paul, writing to Timothy, working in Ephesus, would refer to the need for the truth to be upon a pillar because that was so much a part of their life. Imagine, if you will, a city that's known all over the world for one particular building. Just imagine that. A city that's known all over the world for one particular building. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was the Temple of Diana that was there in Ephesus. You read about it in Acts, the 19th chapter. Other people, historians of that day, kings of the day that would go see the ancient wonders of the world, they would write and say, I visited this one, I visited the Hanging Gardens. They would list the ones they visited and they would say, but as I I approached the temple of Diana and saw her magnificent roof in the clouds, I had never seen anything like her before. What held that roof in the clouds? Notice, not of a living God, but a non-living God. Pillars. 127 pillars held up a structure that was four times the size of the Parthenon. Men and women, kings and peasants, literally traveled the world to come to this place. When they would leave the harbor and make their way into the city, The Arcadian Way was a hundred foot wide marble highway leading into this grand city. You want to guess what was on each side of it? Pillars 50 feet deep leading into this city. A city of magnificence. Pillars holding up the glory of the people. And God says... I want you to be a family, a family of a living God. And I want you to build your life on the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. We build our life on Jesus Christ, he said in John 14 and verse 6. But I also want you to be a pillar. I want you to hold that truth up for the world to see. Friends, if Mount Juliet community, there are individuals that you and I are neighbors with as we go back to our homes, that are lost and if they're ever going to see the truth it's going to be because we as the family of God hold it up. It's going to be because we love the family of God. We respect the family of God. We sacrifice for the family of God. We're submissive in the family of God and we believe that if the family of God is to continue we need to continually grow leaders in the family of God. This morning, there's no invitation greater than the invitation to become a part of the family of God. Son of the Father. I've visited a lot of you, talked with you on the phone, a lot of you shortly after you've had your babies. I don't know how many of you men especially with your newborn in your arms, have looked me in the eyes and said, I didn't know you could love someone this much. That's a father's love. That's how much the father loves you. If we could feel for just a moment how much God loves you, we would say the same thing. I didn't know someone could love me this much. The Father sent His Son to die for you. He wants you to be a part of His family so much. If you've never been baptized into His Son to be added to His family, won't you do that this morning? If you've allowed something to separate you from your family, from your Father, and from His spiritual family, please consider this morning, there's nothing worth it. There's nothing worth Sacrificing the relationship with your family. Family of God. God the Father. Christ the Brother. If you need to pray for forgiveness after repentance and the church family to pray with you, if there's anything we can do, please come as we stand as we sing.